Hi and welcome back to the Village Twitter Podcast. I'm your host in Jabulin Zaband. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Xnest. Enjoy tight, spe- tight spread, speedy and reliable execution in FX, stock, stock indices, US stocks, commodities, and cryptocurrencies and metals. Register for free on xnest.com. If, and if you register using the promo link we have in the show notes or on the banner on the Village Twitter website, you'll get uh, your trading, some of your trading costs back. Um, up to 40% of your trading costs back. This is episode number 61, and this week this is the last episode for the year, closing the year off with a small cap legend, founder of Small Talk Daily, Anthony Clark. Good, good afternoon, Anthony. How are you doing? Yeah, good afternoon. How nice to be your final guest to be on. I'm actually honored. Uh, number 61, hey? I'm not exactly 61 years old. I will be about <laughs> uh, seven years' time, but uh, I'm honored to be the last guest for 2021. Then we all need a long rest after this eventful year. Yeah, most certainly. Everybody needs a, uh, needs a rest. It's been quite an eventful year. And thank you very much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Anytime. You've, you, you ask away and I'm here for you. Yeah. Firstly, how, how did you find yourself in the capital markets? Oh, I'll try and make a very long story very short. Uh, I'm actually an engineer by training. Um, my family in the UK, uh, as you can tell by my accent, I'm not from this country, although I've been in this country uh, since May 1996. My family are farmers and engineers, and that's what I was pushed into when I had no idea what I wanted to do uh, after I left school at, uh, at 17. And uh, so I went into engineering on my dad's request, uh, did quite well, but it's uh, in, in the UK, engineering is long hours. Uh, the pay is not bad, but it's, it's, it's long, dirty hours. And I'm very ambitious, and I didn't want to wait for someone to die to actually get promoted. Uh, I had a, an interest in the stock market from a very, very young age, from 14, um, when I was investing for myself from my school library. And uh, I thought to myself, after five years in engineering, having done quite well, you know, did I really want to wake up every single day, going to the office and, and doing this job? And the answer was no. So I quit, uh, took the savings that I had made, over the preceding number of years, uh, trading and investing for myself. And I put myself back through varsity for another three years. So all in all, I studied for eight years, initially a degree in engineering, specializing in electrical engineering, and then another three-year degree in company financial reporting, specializing in corporate marketing. And uh, I was lucky then enough to get a job as a junior clerk uh, with a very good uh, London stockbroker called Lang & Cruikshank which at that point was owned by a giant French banking group, Credit Lyonnais. And that was in uh, about 1992. And I formally entered the market in London in 1994 as an international equity salesman specializing in emerging markets uh, with a client base predominantly in Europe and the Far East, but predominantly covering uh, emerging markets of which South Africa, uh, for those listeners who may not recall or remember this, in 1994, as this country came out of the dark days of apartheid to the bright light of democracy, uh, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange was the 10th biggest stock exchange in the world, number 10. Uh, how quickly the market has fallen in value terms over the last 25 years. So back in 1994, when this country was opening up, um, I was dealing on the Joburg Stock Exchange for clients in London, and I was approached by Standard Bank at that stage who were starting their own stockbroking division called Standard Equities. And uh, they hired me to become one of their analysts. And I left the UK, the miserable, dingy, February, cold, <laughs> snowy weather. And I landed in Johannesburg on a, on a hot, bright day uh, with 200 rands to my name, nine cardboard boxes, and a brand new driver's license. And I haven't looked back. I've uh, lived in this country now for 26, 27 years uh, in Joburg and in Cape Town. And I absolutely love this place uh, for all the ills we may have as, as a society and all the troubles we know, which is out there. I still love this country, the people and the potential that I think this country and this people has. That's why I'm still here. That's why I cover small to mid caps. It's the most exciting area of the economy and of the JSE. When, when, when you were still a teenager investing um, uh, before you went professional and, and, and leaving engineering, were you, when you, how, how was that period? Were you making money at the time? And what was the basis of your buy and sell decision at the time? And what was it about the markets that, you know, I, I, don't, I can't foresee any random uh, 14-year-old trying to play in the stock market. Um, was it, you know, thrill of the game or, uh, you know, trying to make some money? 
No, it's, uh, it's, it's interestingly for me, it was neither of those. I, I, I really love facts and figures. I'm not a great accountant. In fact, I never passed accounting in my, in my varsity. I just about scraped through. But I, I absolutely love data and information. I'm a compulsive reader. And I always tell anybody that asks me for advice about their, about their career or investing scenarios, read as much as you can, learn as much as you can. And from a very, very young age, I've had the ability to read huge amounts of information and remember it. Uh, those that know me uh, know that I have a, a near perfect memory. So I can read uh, something and, and remember the information and recall it fairly accurately, sometimes, you know, months or years after the event. And I think that that was instilled in me you know, as a, as a kid, I loved reading when I was a kid. Uh, I loved playing with Lego. And, you know, it, it was just who I am. And when, when, the, when the stock market was shown to me by an uncle when I was very young, it just looked exciting and it, it looked interesting. And I, I, I'm a creative person and I like kicking the tires and understanding how things work. You know, accountants are good at numbers, but engineers are good at understanding how a company works. And I think what my engineering discipline and background brought to me uh, was actually understanding the nuts and bolts of how a company runs. And from a very young age, I used to look at companies saying, well, what does it do? Why do I like this company? What are its prospects? You know, as a 14-year-old with no access to information, you know, I'm going back now to, 19, to the early 1980s. There was no such thing as the internet or cell phones. You had to do things the old-fashioned way, reading newspapers, uh, uh, reading annual reports. Um, and you, you get a, a sense of, as to what a company does. So my evolution as an analyst has come from the very basics, starting off as a 14-year-old in reading. You know, now today, we can instantly go on Google and just check out any bit of information that you want. But I still base most of my work on good old-fashioned reading. You know, we've turned the cameras off right now, but if, it were, if the cameras were on, uh, I would show you a, a stack of papers to my, to my right, which is probably about 30 or 40 centimeters high uh, of annual reports, notes, handwritten notes, uh, all sorts of presentations, and I'm a compulsive reader. And it's that basis which has, which has kept me going. So it wasn't to make money. It, it wasn't because it was exciting. I did it because I genuinely loved uh, capital formation and capitalism. And if you, generally, if you love what you do and if the energy is there, uh, you hopefully do quite well in, 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 your, chosen, in your chosen profession. And, I, and I've said this before to other interviews. I come from an extremely humble and very poor background. My parents were divorced when I was very young. My mother was a cleaner uh, and my stepfather was unemployed. And I went to a state school and I had to pay for myself to go through varsity. Uh, so uh, I say that because you do not have to be from an entitled background to do well. If you have passion, energy, drive and determination, um, there's a stronger chance that you will succeed because somebody will, will spot that passion and energy and give you a chance. And that, to me, has been the story of my entire life. Somebody has spotted my energy and my drive. They've given me a job or headhunted me or requested me to move to other companies. And if I can do it, anybody can. That's a, a quick scenario there. Is it, is, is it your basic contention that um, in order for you to, to achieve uh, some 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 success in the markets, especially ultra levels of, ultra levels of success. Um, you need to 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 the love of the game or the love of the endeavor is quite important. Absolutely. Um, back in the day when I was working in corporate, uh, many young analysts used to come and look for jobs uh, at our businesses. And my very very first question to them was: They used to walk in, you know, all bright eyed and shiny with impressive curriculum vitae's and fantastic degrees from great universities in this country. And my first question was, why are you here? And if the question was, well, we think that we can make a lot of money as a stockbroker or as an analyst, um, I would tell them to, just to get out. Uh, the, 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 the young person who said to me, we actually love this. Uh, there's something about the stock market that, that gets me up in the morning. Uh, it's not work, it's, it's a passion, it's a drive. It really interests me to find out more. Um, that, that spark of energy, that spark of passion cannot be created. You cannot teach somebody that in varsity. You have to have it in yourself as a person. And that's what I always look for. You know, it's not about making money and, and getting rich. If you do well in life, people will spot you and you will get well rewarded. But you, you have to remember, if you're listening to this podcast right now, and if, if you're in your late teens or early 20s, do you want to get up every single day? and do a job for sometimes 8, 10, 14 <laughs> hours a day, 
which is what I work and do it every single day and never want to retire. And if you can say that truthfully saying, yes, I love what I do. It's not work. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a passion. It's a vocation. Then you're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the financial markets uh, are so well diversified in terms of opportunities, um, you know, from T-bonds to stocks, small cap, mid cap, tech, whatever. What was it about the small cap uh, um, market that, that, you know, compelled you to, 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 to go down that rabbit hole? Um, I didn't deliberately choose to kind of a small to mid cap sector. Um, when I was working in London, um, covering the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, and, and I say this um, the way that it's meant to be said, I'm not that clever. Uh, I, you know, I, yes, I went to Cambridge and I've got two degrees, but as, a, as an individual, you know, I, I'm not that clever. I don't have an accounting background. I don't have a CFA. I don't have an MBA. And I, and I know what my limitations are and I know what my strength strength is. And so I, did, I deliberately and consciously decided to start looking at companies which there was very little coverage of on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. You know, 30 years ago, when I entered the market, there were probably dozens and dozens and dozens of analysts, all very highly paid, all very clever, covering Anglo-American and British-American tobacco and South African breweries. And I thought, I'm never going to be able to compete. But I guarantee you there will not be many companies covering uh, Wilson Bailey Construction or Bola Metcalf Packaging or Cash Built uh, DIY. So I went into an area where I thought that I could actually have an active niche mm. uh, where I wouldn't have too much competition and where my abilities to actually understand uh, companies on a, on a fundamental basis by kicking the tires would enable me to get to grips and to do a valuation and growth scenario much better than just by pouring over a spreadsheet and crunching numbers. Uh, I'm a salesman by training and part of a salesman is actually having relationships and building relationships and fostering relationships going forward. I despise the term networking. Networking to me is something that you do to achieve an end. Networking may be a very um, fashionable word today, but to me it's dishonest. It should be about relationships because relationships that you forge today, if you do it with dignity, with trust and with passion will stand you instead for decades to come. And in my case, there are certain companies that I covered 26 years ago that I still cover today. And you grow with those companies because they, they understand who you are. They can see your interest and they trust you. And that's one of the reasons why as, as an independent analyst working for myself now here in Cape Town, I've done reasonably well because the relationships which I forged decades ago are still the relationships which I value and trust today, not just on a, on a corporate, in, corporate level, but on an institutional level and uh, an interpersonal basis. It is very bad to burn bridges. Sometimes you have to, but in most cases, you, you must never burn bridges because you never know where somebody ends up. So in, in my case, it's all about understanding the company and about relationships. Yeah, I, I really like what you said there about, about, you know, the difference between networking and, and building relationships with people. And I think relationships are, you know they have a tail reward in, in it by their very nature. You know, as you pointed out, that there are certain relationships that still benefit you today that you fostered 20-odd 20, 20, 20 years ago. And, yeah, I, you know, I concur with that very much. You know, in the, in the beginning of your answer, you cited that um, you consider yourself, at least, uh, not that intelligent. Um, and, you know, reading Market Wizards... Um, the, the idea that intelligence is not a a a, a predictive a, a predictor of success in, in 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 you know trading or investing um you you cited the love of the game the relationships and that sort of thing what what are what are some of the other uh, um elements that produce success uh in in, in the financial markets in your opinion I think the other thing that I would say is consistency. You know, I see many analysts out there picking up coverage of companies and when they're in fashion, they, 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 they love covering them because they're doing quite well. And if a company suddenly hits a rough patch, they will drop coverage. Uh, and then, you know, you lose that very relationship. I, I found in, in my coverage and I cover, um, this, may, this may astonish your listeners, I cover probably up to 80 companies and I know them all quite well. 
uh, to the fact where I've got enormous filing cabinets full of information going back sometimes 20 or 25 years. And consistency uh, in covering a company can give you uh, great rewards. And in interviews like this, I love using examples. And I'm going to give you a classic one right now. Mm -hmm. um, many, many years ago, I was covering a, a small industrial company called Arjun Industrial. Uh, it was a fast-growing conglomerate involved in what I would call the metal bashing industry. It took basic metal and it, and it, and it made things like lockers for schools and hospital beds and school desks and ladders, et cetera, et cetera. And it grew into this sprawling spider's web of, of interests and the share price hit a peak of 20 rand. And then about 10 years ago, the company basically semi-imploded as the weight of its debt and its very complicated structure uh, alongside a weak economy led to its downfall. And for many, many years, nobody really covered it. I did. And the share price fell down from 20 rand all the way down and I had to sell in the stock. You know, uh, people think that I'm always nice to my companies. Uh, many of my companies know that I'm a very <laughs> honest, very opinionated analyst. And I tell it like it is. And if I like you, I'll tell you. And if I don't like you, I'll tell you as well. And if you have, if you have respect for me and respect for my work, which most companies do, they understand that it's an analyst's job to sometimes not say nice things. Yeah. Uh, and I have a very colorful way of working. So consistency in coverage is a good thing. And going back to Arjun, the share price fell and fell and fell, and it bottomed at three rand uh, in early 2019. And again, due to relationships, I got a phone call from a friend of mine saying, Anthony, have you seen Arjun Industrial? And I said, yes. He said, um, it's worth your while to jump on a plane and to go to Durban to meet the CEO, Treve Henry, who's always been in charge of a company. And I thought, you know what? I will. Uh, there must be something here if this guy is phoning me up to say, go and look at the company. So with my own money, I jumped on a plane and spent the entire day in Durban going through Arjun Industrial uh, with a CEO at his office desk. By the end of that day, I realized that this company had radically transformed its strategic intent and its strategic direction. It was going to sell off low-margin businesses, recycle the cash into more profitable margin-enhancing operations, externalize what money it raised domestically to invest in Rand Hedge assets in the UK, which it has very successfully done, and any excess cash it raised from its sprawling property portfolio and uh, adjuncted asset sales, it would do a massive share buyback. And to date, they've bought back about 30% of their entire shares. Now, that combination of, of information was in the marketplace, but nobody had bothered to go to Durban to ascertain what was going on, apart from little old me working for myself. <laughs> I came out in, in March 2019 with a buy recommendation uh, to, my, to my support and client base. And I consistently kept rec recommending the company because sometimes an old dog like Argent can learn new tricks. And that was clearly evident in the information and the research that I had gained from interviewing the company and following it and knowing the history. As it stands today, less than three years later, the share price has moved from three rand fifty to just shy of 14 rand. It's been one of the best performing small cap stocks in my universe and continues to deliver fantastic earnings growth, share buybacks, and the potential for extended earnings growth in a rand hedge environment. So it shows you sometimes if you're on the ball and you catch something before anybody else, you can make a great deal of money. And there's one example of how a little guy in, in Cape Town with no resources, <laughs> no Bloomberg, no iNet, no fancy software, nothing, just uses his intelligence to jump on a plane knock on someone's door and say, hey, what's going on? Why have you changed? And why should I now recommend you as a buy? And I haven't changed my buy recommendation since. It's still a buy with a target price of 16 Rand. Um, you, so you don't just follow these companies. You follow them quite uh, you know, intimately. You, you, you go to the, to, uh, I saw with, with uh, I believe it was Renage, and you actually went to the plant. Um, so you... you, you you, you, you do a proper proper deep dive in, in, in these companies. What are some of the things that uh, uh, you look at either, you know, looking at the founder or CEO that uh, tells you, you know what, this is a good company, this is good management. Um, and what are some of your favorite questions that you ask uh, CEOs and ex executives in these companies? 
ooh, now you want to give away some of my trade secrets. It's a lot simpler than you would ever imagine. A lot simpler. Um, as I said to you, I'm not that clever. I don't have an accounting background. So, I, you know, I can read a balance sheet and I can do basic modeling. But it's not the, it's not a be-all and end-all of my life. Um, I like to understand companies. And I think anyone that follows uh, my Twitter account will understand. But I look at the, the granular detail regarding companies. Most analysts who cover stocks generally only look at the interim numbers and the final results. If anything happens in between, they don't really care. <laughs> I care. Every single um, element that happens inside a company, whether it's a director's dealings, an annual general meeting, uh, some form of share buyback, some form of announcement, I track and I want to understand why they're doing this and what is the consequence of what they're doing. Is it good? Is it bad? Which is why I build up these old fashioned files. And I also keep in touch with companies very, very intimately. Again, most analysts don't bother to speak to management that often. Uh, but are some companies that I follow that I can speak to sometimes on a weekly basis. Uh, they become, I wouldn't say friends of yours, because you have to keep a very um, dispassionate view, because you may be covering the company, but you have to respect them, and they have to respect you. But the, you have to realize you are doing a job, and that job can sometimes mean some very harsh words and some very difficult recommendations. So my, my simplest question, uh, and it's the easiest uh, and you may not believe this actually works, but it actually does. Most CEOs actually want to engage with analysts. And if, you and if they believe that you have a passion and an inherent interest in their company, they will be very open and, and, and very chatty about what's going on. So I learned many years ago as a, as a former salesman, but if you keep quiet, most uh, management get quite unnerved that this analyst who they're interviewing is keeping fairly quiet. So they start talking. And the more they start talking, the more they start telling you. And the more, the more they start telling you, you can then have leading questions. by saying, hmm, you've just told me you're doing, you're doing this uh, strategic uh, acquisition. Now, why would you be doing that? It's a very simple question. So one of, one of my simplest opening questions to any CEO or any CFO or even any chairman is, it's, it's simple. I say, hello there, how's things? Now, that's very simple, <laughs> innocuous, honest little question. How's things? Can have any number of consequences. How's things in your own life? How's things at home? How's things in business? How's things in your deal making? How's things in your division? And it's, just, it's such a simple opening line, but it's probably one of the most powerful tools that I have. A simple opening line, how's things? Anyone that's ever listened into any of my AGM um, interviews with companies, my opening line is, How's things? And people generally then fill in the gaps. They want to give you information. And from that opening line, how's things, you can then structure an entire interview or an entire presentation from an opening simple line. Yeah. Does that also help you in, 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 in like real life or just in life outside the markets, just interacting with people? Um, again, this is going to sound like a very strange question. Uh, for I'm a market personality, and I and I don't say that to sound arrogant. Um, everybody knows who I am, and I'm very open in, in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but as an individual, my private life is 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 a is completely different to my work life. In my work life, I'm outgoing, gregarious, chatty. I can talk to anybody. I can have conversations about pretty much any topic related to market activity corporate activity or world economic uh, policy and, uh, and general politics. But in my private life, I'm incredibly shy. I will not speak to strangers. I will very rarely engage <laughs> with anybody unless they come up to me and say, hello, are you Anthony? And I'll say yes, and I'll want to know why they want to speak to me. So it's, it's a strange dichotomy, but in my, in my professional life, I'm the person that you see every single day. But in my private life, I'm extremely, I'm extremely shy and a little bit guarded. And uh, it seems to work for me because in my, in my, in my professional life, um, I know that I can add value to the work that I do. But uh, in my private life, I often wonder why people are actually interested in who I am. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, keep that side, I, I keep that side of my life uh, very quiet. Everybody knows that I love my dog. He's sitting here next to me on the floor, wondering who the hell I'm talking to. Uh, everyone knows I live in Cape Town and I, and I love my, my, my big green truck. I love gardening and cooking. 
Uh, apart from that, my private life is uh, is is very very is very very closed. Ah, no, got you. And that 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 green truck is a thing of beauty. I I'm sorry, I saw it on Twitter the other day. Yeah, that thing is beautiful. Um. So so when when you would we were chatting with with CEOs, especially when you ask them open and open ended questions like how's doing, and you know they start blabbering away, uh, giving you all sorts of different information. Um. Do, when, when, when CEOs and, 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 and people are just being honest and tell you, I suppose at times telling you things they were not supposed to tell you, do you go short stocks or do you just put up a sell recommendation? Um, let me, let me um, give you some, some insights here. Um, because I cover companies very, very closely. Um, any, again, anyone that knows me knows that I'm not a fan of technology. Uh, I hate technology because it never seems to work. I'm a fan of old-fashioned pen and paper. So anyone that sees me out knows that I always have my little moleskin notebook and generally a fountain pen because I, I do things the old-fashioned way. I take lots of handwritten notes. And when you keep lots of handwritten notes and when you visit companies and engage with companies as often as I do, you build up this wealth of information, this, 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 this tome of background information. And I use that as a basis of my work because of my memory and the, and the detailed files that I have on companies from press cuttings to press clippings, my own research, annual reports, results, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that generally keeps companies honest because they know that I cover them extremely closely. And if they say one thing one day, and then two weeks later they say something different, they know that I'm probably going to pick up and say, hang on, two weeks ago you told me you were doing this. Why are you telling me <laughs> this has now changed in two weeks? Um, what, what's happened? And that, to me, keeps them honest because they know but I have this virtually encyclopedic knowledge of the company. And yes, you often get misled. You know, there are skeletons out there in the market. Look at, look at uh, what happened with EOH. Look what happened mm -hmm. with Tongart. Look what happened with, uh, with Steinhoff. We often get misled by the tales that are cleverly told by very scheming CEOs. But on the whole, most companies are generally fairly honest and fairly engaging. And in a small to mid-cap universe, they're often run by family-orientated businesses or they're run by CEOs who have been with a company for a long time. And if they see that you have an inherent long-term interest, they will often give you far more information than they would normally give an analyst who they've just met for the first time. It all comes down again to relationships, credibility, and trust. So they will often give you information, which is not privileged, but they will give you more information, knowing that you will treat it in a very confidential manner. So I tell people that I want to be extremely well informed about a company, but I never want to be too dangerous. Because if you're too dangerous, the one thing you could potentially lose is your reputation. And I've guarded my reputation for the best part yeah. of 30 years, and I will never let that reputation go. So it's all about engaging with a company consistently, keeping detailed notes, and then interrogating the companies if they need to be interrogated. And as you correctly say, I love visiting companies and I love in personal engagements. I'm no fan of Zoom. Um, in the last two weeks, I've had breakfast, breakfast, lunch, dinner with numerous CEOs as I have meetings tomorrow uh, and Thursday and next week with CEOs who actually openly want to engage directly with me. And I'm telling you right now, when you look a CEO in the eye, you can generally tell from their body language or their movements if they're telling you the truth or they're telling you a lie. And it, sometimes all it takes is answering a question and they say to me, Anthony, you know we can't answer that question regarding you know, what we're doing. But if they say it with a wry smile, you know you've gotten the answer then and they, they, they don't need to tell you what they're doing. Just their body language and the way they look at you uh, can sometimes give you the, the very answer that you need. Uh, I shan't name names, but many years ago, a very, very well-known uh, executive in the mid-cap space, blue chip royalty, as I call them, I asked him a question uh, regarding a transaction, uh, which I knew was going to occur. And he said, you know I can't answer that question. And I looked at him and he just smiled. I said, thank you. You've just told me everything that I need to know. Because I knew the background details to the transaction. I just didn't know if we were going to do it. And just a smile is all you sometimes need. <laughs> I got you. Got you. Um, you know, twenty years is a long time to be invested in in in, in a company, especially uh, in, in great details as you do. What makes you 
you know, say, okay, I'm going to dig further into this company, uh, this company, I'm, I'm, you know, what makes you say no to a company, you're not going to look any further, and what makes you say yes to a company, you're going to look some more? That's a great question. And, I, and, I, and I, once again, I'm going to give you two direct answers with two direct examples. Why do I cover a company? I, as an analyst, generally pick up four new companies a year. You know, during the course of one's uh, yearly work, companies get delisted, um, they get taken over, or their prospects fundamentally change, or sometimes they get too big. Uh, as a small cap analyst, there's no point in me covering a company when it's too big. Although I maintain the relationships, even if they've delisted or if they've gotten too big. But uh, an example of a company which I refused to cover for many, many, many years, uh, much to their, uh, to, their, uh, to their disgust, was Renogen, uh, a company that I've uh, been following now since the beginning of this year, and as you know, is a stock market darling. Everybody loves Renogen. Um, so why didn't I cover it? Renogen was basically founded uh, in 2015 via a, a small a special purpose vehicle to re-explore for gas in the free state. Look at natural gas and rare gases like helium. Um, for many years, uh, it was spending a great deal of money developing the prospect, and the company was loss-making, and it hadn't actually developed or proven there was anything in this hole in the ground. Now, towards the end of 2020, uh, intelligence that I was receiving from uh, uh, my, my network was telling me that their exploration was uh, showing some excellent results. And indeed, there were significant quantities of liquid natural gas and helium um, in the free state. Uh, so I started building a file, uh, annual reports, results, press cuttings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I had my first meeting with Steph Marani, uh, the CEO, in December 2020. Uh, we had a general conversation about uh, my uh, aspirations in covering the company, my initial feelings regarding their potential, my initial analysis regarding their prospects, which he seemed to confirm. Uh, I then met with Steph on, an, on a number of occasions, and I was the first analyst to actually go to see their free state operations in April uh, 2021. And I spent eight hours in the car with the CEO, visited the operations, kicked the tires, met the staff, and actually saw that what they were talking about in the papers was actually real. You know, many companies which have, you know, um, rocketing share prices are often driven on uh, investor relations spin and, and what I would call good news flow. But if you go and see the operations, kick the tires, speak to the operations managers, speak to the drillers who are drilling the, 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 the holes in the ground, speak to the people doing the health and safety, you get a much better understanding that this company actually does have some substance. It's not just a good news story with constantly uh, good sense stories coming out. So in early January this year, at about 12 Rand, I came out with a buy. Uh, it was my belief the company was moving from an exploration phase to a commercial development phase, and that would occur at some point this year. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, they're turning the taps on Virginia phase one literally as we speak. So in 2022, there'll be earnings and revenue coming from this business. And the share price has gone from 12 Rand to a higher 41. We're now back to about 31 Rand. Uh, and that's one example of sometimes you have to be patient and wait for things to develop. And as you and as things develop and you have a sense of comfort that what you are analyzing actually has visibility and more importantly, viability, and you trust what management are telling you because your own analysis and, and intelligence is, is, is augmenting what management tells you, you can then come out with a recommendation. Companies that I won't follow, sometimes it's to do with liquidity. Um, as, I, as I tell you, I, I'm not that clever. And if a company is overtly complicated, where the underlying story cannot be quickly and simply articulated, um, then it's sometimes difficult for me as a salesman and an analyst to then repackage that story into a form where my client base would understand. So if it's too complicated um, because the business is a sprawling conglomerate or it says it has proprietary software, which nobody else in the world <laughs> has, and you know they do things better than anybody else, even global giants like Google and FedEx and UBS. But I often wonder, well, if it's if it's so brilliant, why aren't they doing it? So you know, whilst I cover Santova, 
Santoba is a great little um, logistics business which has done very, very well. But it's a very difficult story to sell. When I say sell, not as in sell the company, as in to market to, a, to, a, to an institutional investor or a private client investor, because it's not an easy story. And I sometimes avoid companies because the best stories are always the simplest. And whilst I think that Santoba has a good, has a good underlying corporate structure and corporate strategy, it is not the easiest story to actually convey to a, to a potential client. And as such, I do not cover it to the same depth as I do other companies where the narrative is much cleaner and much simpler to get across. So I'm hoping that those two examples uh, will clarify why I look at a company and sometimes why I don't. Yeah, no, got you, got you. You know, someone on, on, on Twitter um, asked you, how were you constrained, um, you know, as an institu- institutional analyst um, and how is it different when, 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 when you're now solo? That was a great question. I saw that on, on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, I thought so, so too. I asked that question, I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to give you the, 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 uh, an answer which you would not expect. <laughs> Many people would believe that when you give up a corporate job and a corporate salary, for whatever reason, whether, whether the firm has gone bust or they kick you out or the firm just closes down or you've had enough, for whatever reason, um, you decide to leave corporate employment and you strike out on your own. And many people, as you know, on social media have started their own little businesses and, and are doing quite nicely. Uh, like my friend Soul Ferry on Twitter is doing a fantastic job um, educating her client base, people like yourselves and, of course, others who we all know on social media. In my case, you know, and, I, and I'll say it like it is, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a 50 plus white male uh, in this country, it would have been very difficult for me to move back into a corporate environment. I had many offers, but none of the offers really appealed to me. And in the end, um, my client base, who have supported me for many, many years, basically said, listen, if you do what you do, but for yourself, we'll continue to support you. We like your work. We like the way that you think. We like the fact that you've got these fantastic relationships which we as companies would find it very difficult to replicate, and that you have access to companies which you know, we as young analysts or, or, or clients would find very difficult to actually um, to build. And we will support you. And I can tell you that as an independent analyst, um, I actually get better support and better access as an independent than I ever did as a corporate analyst. And the answer for, for that reason is extremely simple. When, you're, when you work for yourself, one, you work harder, but secondly, you are completely independent. But there's nobody looking over your shoulder telling you, well, you can't say that about this particular company because we have a corporate deal of a go, or we have a banking relationship, or we're looking to lend them money. So if you put a sell recommendation out, it'll annoy them, and we, we might not get the business. And not that I ever did that, but the, the, you know, the fact is you have to toe a certain corporate line when you work in a corporate environment, there's always this political correctness, but you sometimes can't tell it like it is. And anyone that's read my research will know that I tell it like it is. I have a very colorful way of writing and I, and I don't mince my words. I tell <laughs> it like it is. And in a corporate environment, you are sometimes constrained from, from that level of um, honesty and openness. When you work for yourself and you are your own boss and you, there's no one to tell you off if you do something right or wrong, um, corporates appreciate that because they know that when they engage with you, they're engaging with somebody who, who is transparent, independent, honest, and has a certain de- degree of integrity. And I can tell you the corporates that I deal with in terms of the companies that I analyze are probably far more open with me now as an ind- independent than they ever were when I worked for corporate because they actually want to help me. They realize that I have to pay my bills, but I have to you know, pay my rent and put food on my table as difficult as it is at times. Uh, and they actually say, you know what? We actually like you as a person. We want to support you and we will make sure that you actually have you know, some form of income to keep, uh, to keep uh, the, you know, the wolves at bay. So do not be scared about going, alone, going out on your own. If you've got great relationships, if people actually like who you are and what you do, um, I'm living proof that you will be supported. It will not be easy. Um, it might be hard at times to put uh, to put food in your table, and for me, it has at times been very difficult. But in many cases, you'll be surprised how decent, good, and kind uh, clients and corporates are um, when they actually want to help you. No, I got you. I like that. I like that a lot, especially um, the the 
markets offer that 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 freedom of you know doing whatever you want. Of course, you know, uh, with with you know, the 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 bitter bitter peel of of discipline in 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 there. Well, discipline again is a, is a is a good is a good word. When you work for yourself, um, you know, you could quite easily not do anything. You could spend all day watching Netflix or surfing the net. <laughs> but at the end of the day, um, you are only as good as your last report and the information that you have. And you actually have to work harder. Uh, anybody who works for themselves will know there is no such thing as an eight to four job or a nine to five. I often sometimes work until midnight. Uh, after this podcast, I've got work to keep me busy until about 8 p.m. this evening. Reports that I've yet to write today because I've been doing admin and, uh, and other things. So you, you tend to work harder and you have to have a certain degree of discipline in your home life and your workspace, which is why I have a dedicated office at home where I go to work and uh, I actually get up at a normal time. But if I don't want to work on Fridays, I don't. But uh, you have to have a certain degree of discipline. And I think uh, that motivates me. I love what I do. This is not work. This, this, is, this is a hobby that's become a career which has become my life. No, I got you. So well, once, once you've picked the company that, that you want to buy, how do you decide on the price and the price target? Oh, now that is, again, very subjective. Uh, I know all the clever analysts out there with their wonderful spreadsheets and discounted cash flows and all of these <laughs> fancy uh, accounting tools that they use to give valuations will, will decry the way that I work. But I can tell you, when I set a price target or an earnings number, I am generally pretty damn close. Uh, I wouldn't say I make it up, but this comes with decades of, of analysis yeah. and understanding a company. And if you've got the type of information that I have uh, in terms of the, you know, the, the inner workings and understanding the, you know, the, the dynamics of a company, you can very quickly in the back of an envelope work out what the earnings forecast would be. You have the, 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 the benefit of decades of analysis uh, understanding and where valuations for stocks should be. So when I often come up with a price target, I often tell people I'll just make it up. But I do make it up. But it's, it's, it's made up with 40 years of experience of doing this since I was 14 years old. And it's that depth of experience that enables me to give a, a reasonably accurate forecast in terms of target value and earnings forecasts. And I then understand, well, if this company is trading an appeal of this number and the sector is trading an appeal of that number, what should it be trading at? Should it be at a premium or a discount? And I use that then as a basis to construct my, my target values. And uh, again, not to sound arrogant, because uh, I'm, I'm not that arrogant. Uh, I'm confident, but I'm not that <laughs> arrogant. Um, most of my target prices are generally achieved because, you know, if you're the only guy covering a stock and you cover it well and you cover it closely, um, you become the market bellwether. So if you say it's worth X, then the market, if you're the only guy covering a stock, sometimes it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and that can often work in my favor in the small to mid, in the small to mid cap markets. Um, you know, I came out as an example uh, many years ago when Anchor Group listed at two rand. I think it was September 2015. I came out on the first day on a two rand listing saying this stock would get to 20 rand. And my clients thought I was absolutely insane. I said, how on earth can you say that a company listing at two rand can be worth 20? 18 months later, the stock peaked at 18 rand 80. Oh. So sometimes the benefit of, uh, of wisdom uh, and a bit of gray in your hair can play in your favor much more than any than any Excel spreadsheet or, or accounting software. Yeah, and I think I think um, you know having traded the past couple of years, um, I, I've found that in, in, intuition plays a slightly bigger role than the technical tools that I use. Um, do you find that to be true as well? Absolutely. Um, I look at all sorts of scenarios. It's not just the, the understanding of the company's accounts and the strategic direction. I also look at technical analysis as a, as a guide. And the most important thing that I look at is sentiment. Now, you can't quantify sentiment. Sentiment is this intangible, untenable um, mist that's, that pervades the market. You have to understand what sentiment is. You know, if a, if a company doesn't do that well, you know that sentiment is going to force the company, you know, to actually issue bad news. The share price will fall. Now, how far will it fall? 
you know, what's the sentiment behind its fall? Why are people acting in this manner? Again, this comes from experience. So I track the sentiment of the stock very, very closely. Mm. And if you, can, if you sometimes spot early on a sentiment change, if I could fundamentally see a share price's potential moving higher, or a sentiment change if I could see the share price being sold off. If you pick up a map early, then you can make a great deal of money by predicting a stock. And again, I'll use a, a, a direct, exact example, Renogen. Why would I suddenly pick that stock on January the 14th at 12 Rand? Because the work that I had done on the underlying company, the spontaneity of my analysis on its potential, the fact that it was beginning to attract what I call the chattering classes and the fact it was moving towards commercial development of its project meant that sentiment and the news flow would be positive, which meant the share price in theory would run and run hard. And it did. Okay. So when you hit your price target, do you, do you take the money off the table or do you let the profits run? Um, I actually don't trade for myself. It might surprise many people. I do not trade. Um, I have free pension funds, which are administered by independent uh, advisors, and I very rarely do anything. I buy great companies, and I often sit in them for a long, long time. Uh. Um, uh, on Twitter last week, Mark Hassenfuss, the editor of the Financial Mail, uh, put in his Financial Mail column a, a stock that he would absolutely buy in the retail space if he only had to buy one retail stock was Carp Agri, to which my response was, I know, it's a great stock. I've owned that share for the last 10 years, and I'll never sell it. So if you find a great company and the prospects remain solid, why would you ever sell it? Sometimes things do change. A company's underlying prospects mean that you have to sell the stock. But in most cases, I have a buy and hold scenario. And if I like a stock, I just buy more. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes I do sell. Uh, and again, I'll use a real-world example. Um, anyone who follows my Twitter account will realize that at the end of July this year, uh, I was calling the iron ore price lower because of my reading on sentiment regarding the global iron ore market based on increasing Chinese rhetoric to do with the air pollution in the country. And at that point, the iron ore price was at $215 a ton, having doubled during the course of the last 12 months. Companies listed in the stock market that are tied into iron ore, which is Kumba and Afrimat, did fantastically well. But if my scenario and sentiment analysis of iron ore rolling over and weakening based on Chinese rhetoric was confirmed, then I anticipated that those two shares would fall and fall quite sharply, particularly if the iron ore price were to crash, which it did. The iron ore price fell from $215 a ton to a low of 84 it's now trading at $104 this morning. So companies <laughs> uh, tied into iron ore have seen their revenue numbers more than half. Uh, the, Kumba, uh, the Kumba iron ore price fell by about 40%, and the Afrimat price from its high fell 22%. So my pension fund sold this Afrimat at 61 Rand, and it has very recently bought all the stock back at 50 Rand. So sometimes you have to follow the trend and sell high when you think the price is rolling over, and then wait for it to bottom, and then buy it back. And uh, I do that occasionally, but not very often. Ah, no, got you, got you. Um, so can you, can you share some of the most painful stories that you've experienced in the markets, and what was the lessons that you learned from there? Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you one from my very, very early days, uh, one which is a constant bane of my life, and one where um, the story sounded fantastic, and then it all went pear-shaped. So the earliest story that I had was when I was very, very young, and you often learn from your mistakes. Back in the, in the early 80s, in the United Kingdom, the, the British government under Margaret Thatcher, who was a conservative, uh, was selling off state-owned industries to the private sector. So basically, you were privatizing former government industries. It's a bit like this country, the government suddenly saying we are going to be selling off ESCOM to the private sector. It'll probably never happen in this country, but in the UK, British gas... British Telecom, uh, British Petroleum, British Airways were all sold off to the private sector. I, I believe that British Airways, when it was sold off, was, was being sold off at too high a price, and the underlying fundamentals of the stock meant that its listing price was too high, and on listing, I thought the share price would fall. And I thought, as a, as a clever 17-year-old, that I would short the share and, uh, and sell something that I didn't own, hoping to buy it back at a cheaper price, 
and make a profit from selling high and buying low. So I gambled all of my savings shorting British Airways. What a mistake that was. In the course of the first two weeks of listing, the share price ran and I lost every single cent that I had made in the preceding three years. You learn a very valuable lesson when you lose all your money. I've never shorted a share since because I'm, I'm simply not that clever. Uh, in my middle years, uh, when I was investing in my own pension fund, um, if you buy great stocks and they run very, very hard, sadly in this country, um, the government or the regulatory body bodies force you under Regulation 28, you cannot have more than 10% of your fund in any one share. So if you pick a, if you pick a brilliant share, which does fantastically well, and it goes up, you know, hundreds of percents, you are often forced under Reg 28 to sell your great shares because you've, it exceeds 10% of your pension fund. And I used to have arguments with my independent financial advisor. My average in price back in the day in Curro Holdings was 1 Rand 78. At its peak in 2014, it hit 60 Rand, 60 Rand. I made thousands and thousands of percent on my initial investment. And I was consistently forced by this stupid rule called Reg 28 to sell my winning shares and reinvest the money into other things where I should have held on. Um, so sometimes I decry regulation. Sometimes, you know, you have to hang on to your winners. But in this case, I'm consistently forced, even today, to sell my winning stocks because Reg 28 says it's, it's run too hard and they forced you to sell your great stocks, which I think is, is complete insanity. And then the stock which, uh, which burnt me and some of my clients very badly, I'll take a sip of my coffee. Back in the day, uh, during the construction boom of, of the late 2000s, um, Sean Melnick, who was the founder of Peregrine, the financial conglomerate, uh, listed his private interests in construction materials. The company was called Buildworks. And because of a Sean Melnick connection, uh, the genius that he is in financial services, everybody thought that the Melnick Golden Touch <laughs> would work on building materials. And it did. Buildworks did fantastically well. And then as the building and construction boom started to slow uh, in 2010 to 2015, they diversified into uh, infrastructure and they moved into basically a power infrastructure. Uh, you know, installing uh, renewable energy, uh, putting in um, cabling and transmission lines for ESCOM and moving into the heavy industry and heavy power-related industries. And they did a number of significant transactions. And Consolidated Infrastructure Group, CIG, which Buildworks became, hit uh, a peak of about 36 rand. It went up from about 10 rand post-consolidation to about 36 rand, and it was flying high. It was a stock market darling. The CEO was very well regarded. Um, he'd run a number of very successful companies, but he bought one company called Conco, uh, and the management of that company, unbeknown to the holding company, were basically cooking the books. They were they was telling the head office that we were doing fantastically well and generating all, all of his revenue and making all of his profit, but it was all lies. It was all fictitious. And uh, eventually it all collapsed and the associated debts and the losses that a subsidiary had accumulated fed back into the, uh, in the master company called CIG and the company share price crashed from 36 rand down to a matter of cents. Ooh. And within a space of three years, the company had basically gone bankrupt. So uh, it was a, let's call it the engineering version of Steinhoff, <laughs> where, you know, fabrication at a division, at a divisional level had caused the entire company to go belly up. Much of this was hidden from a, from, a, from a top management and they found out as we did and they were duty bound to disclose to the market uh, the books were being cooked. But by that, late, by that point, it was too late. The share price was in free fall. Um, we weren't to know what was going on, a bit like the Steinoff story. It only came out when the company collapsed. So sometimes mm. you have to uh, live and learn and yes, the management were telling you the truth, but perhaps the un underlying management of their subsidiary companies were not telling you the truth. But you didn't know that because you were relying on the primary company to give you information, which yeah. they did to the best of their knowledge. They just didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. 
So there's three examples that uh, have cost me dearly in the last 30 years. <laughs> and, and what about the stories or experiences that you're most grateful for? Yeah, sometimes you have to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, when I was working in London, um, I was involved in listing many small cap companies. And one that I listed many years ago uh, was a technology company called Transense Technology. It's still listed. Uh, and back in the day, I'm going back now to 1995, it developed a, a proprietary technology which made uh, power steering in cars a lot cheaper to actually uh, have as an option. Now, I'm going back now when power steering and electric windows and you know, in-car entertainment was not a standard on normal cars. It was an added extra, mainly for fantasy cars. So if you, have, if you developed a device which can make power steering available to cheap entry cars, you can make a great deal of money. So I listed this company at the equivalent of 15 pence, one five pence. Within the space of three years, the share price had gone from 30 pence, sorry, from 15 pence to 30 pounds. I've made probably 20,000% on my money uh, from just being lucky. Uh, I sold most of the stock and reinvested that back into my into my pension fund. Sometimes you just you just catch a great idea and you run with it. And I'll give you another example. I mentioned Kuro uh, in my last uh, question to you about you know how I made a lot of money from spotting that company early. Mm -hmm. Sometimes relationships pays. I cover PSG quite closely, and I cover its constituent companies quite closely, like Zeda Investments the agricultural entity. Mm -hmm. Now, many years ago, I was having lunch with the, the then CEO of Zeda called Antony Jacobs. And he said to me over luncheon, oh, we've just got to bought this little investment um, which you might have an interest in. Because we know that you cover Advertech, the other school company. We've gone and bought 50% of this school company uh, here in Durbanville. A small little business. We paid 50 million rand for a 50% stake. It's only got three schools and maybe a couple of thousand learners. Why don't you go uh, knock on the door? when you're back in head office and go and chat to the guy who's done the investment. So after luncheon, I went back to the PSG's office in Stellenbosch, walked down the corridor, knocked on the door and spent a couple of hours speaking with the then CEO of Paladin Capital called Francois uh, Swart. And he told me all about this little embryonic school business they had uh, bought called Pura Holdings, run and founded by the charismatic uh, educator, Dr. Chris van der Merwe. Now, at that point, you could have bought Kuro Holdings as part of a greater Paladin Capital private equity vehicle, which was listed in the stock market. And I ran out of the building and bought some shares. And when Paladin Capital was unbundled uh, and bought back by PSG, uh, I got a huge chunk of Kuro shares at the equivalent of one rand seventy-eight, and a lot of shares uh, in PSG back in the day of 33 rand. This was way before they unbundled Capitec. So then the price now will probably be like I got my Kuro shares at one rand seventy eight and my PSG shares at maybe you know maybe like six rand, and uh, that turned into a fantastic deal. Kuro went from one rand seventy eight to sixty rand, even though it then fell back, and PSG went from six rand to three hundred. So sometimes uh, a great tidbit of information and perseverance can pay you huge rewards. I don't find those very often. You know, I know th th those were, were quite uh, uh, fortunate circumstances and like, great, great, great returns as well. Um, so, I've recently, I've you know, I've been mentored uh, uh, quite, quite, uh, quite closely. Have you, have you ever been mentored before, and uh, um, have you in turn mentored other people? Yeah, in, in the early days of my career as a, as a young stockbroker. Sometimes you have to have a lucky break. And as I started off this interview, given my background, coming from a very humble, very working class background, uh, stockbroking in the, in the United Kingdom in the early 80s was, was very upper class. You know, very, you had to go to a posh school and speak of a certain type of accent and you had to know the right people. And that certainly wasn't me. Uh, and I remember knocking on the door one day at a local stockbroker and uh, the guy eventually saw me and I told him, so I'm 17, uh, you know, I'm from this background, I'm doing engineering, what do I need to do uh, to become a stockbroker? And he said to me, you need to go back to university, you need to do these type of qualifications, you need to start reading and understanding the stock markets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I did exactly that and I worked very hard. 
um, about nine years later, um, after I finished my varsity course in my mid-20s, uh, I had to find a job. And I saw an advertisement for a stockbroker's clerk, which is a junior position uh, in any brokerage firm. And I applied. And one cold uh, winter day in the UK, I took a train to London. Uh, I walked in the snow to the office of this uh, well-known stockbroking company. Uh, and I had an, an interview with a gentleman who said, come and see me. And the very same guy who nine years previously had given me the advice was the same guy that interviewed me for this junior position. And he said, did I see you nine years ago? I said, you did, sir. Uh, you told me to do this, 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 and this. Uh, his name was David Cochran. And that guy remembered me and remembered that the tenacity and the passion that I had. He hired me on the spot. And for a number of years, I was his right-hand man doing portfolio investment, portfolio construction, and eventually transferred me to the head office of an institutional desk. So sometimes you have to get a lucky break. Um, since then, I've basically had some really good mentors or I've worked with some really, really good analysts. And I'll, and I'll, I'll give them a shout out. I've worked with a, a gentleman uh, in Johannesburg called Sid Vianello, uh, who was probably one of the country's premier retail analysts back in the day. He's now in his 60s and he's still on Twitter. Uh, his <laughs> handle is, is at Siddles. He is still in his 60s, probably one of the best regarded, well-informed, passionate retail analysts I've ever come across. And I was lucky to spend five years working with Sydney. I learned so much and I learned from him how to construct from the back of an envelope evaluation of a company and the value of relationships. I also worked with a gentleman called Peter Armitage, who back in the day was one of the country's premier uh, industrial analysts. He was number one in nine separate categories in the financial mail. It has never been beaten. I have never come across, <laughs> I've never in my career come across an analyst who has such an innate sense of understanding a company and looking at things with a, with a depth of clarity and simplicity. And I worked with Pete again for five years. And from Pete, I learned how to value companies and how to cut through the noise to look at what really matters in a company. We are still friends. He's now the CEO of Anchor Group, uh, the unlisted uh, asset management company with 90 billion rand under management. And uh, from those two gentlemen, I learned a great deal. As it stands right now, because I work for myself, I, I don't mentor people directly because I work long hours. But what I do do, and as anyone that knows me, um, I will generally answer as many questions as I can, uh, given I have to work for myself. I will do podcasts like this to hopefully enlighten and educate people to the passion and understanding that I have of financial markets and inequities. And I often give lectures and presentations to uh, young, like-minded people, because at the end of the day, as I say, if my time, and I've now been talking to you for an hour and five minutes, if an, if an hour and five minutes of my time just sparks the interest in one person out there who thinks that perhaps they can't do this job because they come from a wrong background. They don't have a right education. Perhaps they don't come from a right family. Perhaps they don't speak that well or they're not that clever. If I inspire one person to say, you know what, you can do it, then my time is worthwhile. And that's why I do things like this, to inspire people to say, you know what, yes, you can. No, no, I like that. I like that a lot. I like that. And what about books? Um, you know, books are, uh, are such reliable mentors and teachers as well. Um, can you give me your top five? I'm not going to give you any books. Um, I could I could be very clever, like you know, many people um, uh, on on your platform say, oh yes, I've got this enormous stack of highly intelligent, thick books next to my bed, which I read every night, and it's it's all you know, it, it makes them all sound very clever and super smart, which I'm sure they are. I'm not that clever, and I'm not that smart. I read a business day every single day from cover to cover. I read the Financial Mail weekly, cover to cover. I read The Economist magazine weekly, cover to cover. I listen to CNBC daily. It's my background news flow. I read annual reports. I follow the news flow from SENS. I read what I call everyday information. Because at the end of the day, the only way to understand a company is to understand what a company does. And to understand that, you have to read. No end of textbooks and all these <laughs> clever, smart MBA 
Harvard, Princeton accountants will teach you how to understand a company. You physically have to understand it for yourself and to read. One of the best books that I ever read was by a, a well-known international fund manager called Peter Lynch. He was the fund manager of the Fidelity Magellan Fund back in the 1980s. It was one of the world's single largest investment fund. And he had a very simple philosophy on life. It, you have to be able to understand the companies that you are buying and you have to kick the tires and you have to be able to explain the story to somebody who knows nothing about the company in a simple, clear narrative. It's called One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Buy that book. I have bought that book and given it away to many, many young people. And what he said in, 19, in the 1980s is as relevant today in 2021 as it was in, in the 1980s. Understand a company, find a great simple story, and just get to the grips of what a company is. So I tell people, understand a company that you perhaps have an interest in. If you like retail, cover retail stocks. If you like mining stocks, cover mining stocks. Become the expert in an area of the stock market which genuinely drives and gives you a passion. I love small to mid caps. I like industrial stocks because I'm an engineer by training. And I understand those companies. That's what drives me. So I would say read everyday literature to get a basic understanding of, uh, of, uh, of the company and the market. And then this book, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, is a great, great book. And it's cheap too. Nick, I, I'll add it to my, to my, to my watch list um, and, and, and list of books to read uh, for, for the year 2022. Um, now, Anthony, that, that, that we win a pocket here, thank you very much. What a great way to, to, to end of the year, the podcast. Um, and a big thank you to our sponsors, Exynos.com, and a big thank you to our listeners as well. Thank Anthony, thank you very much for your time, and thank you for listening. Check you next time on The Village Trader. We'll see you next year. Cheers. Anthony. Thank you, for, thank you for asking me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And as I said, if I've inspired one person to go out and buy a newspaper and to do some reading, then my time was well worth it. Take care. Cool. Now, thank you very much. Follow Anthony uh, at Small Small talk daily on twitter and follow myself at village twitter za uh, with that being said thank you very much for listening thank you Anton, for your time see you next time Cheers.